Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast from a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and a chapter where the Bolsheviks have seized power and it seems like there is tension that might erupt into something more specific. Let's start reading. Civil War The years between 1918 and 1922 witnessed a level of chaos, strife, and savagery that was unparalleled since Russia's Time of Troubles at the beginning of the 17th century, 1605-1613, footnote 22. It has been estimated that between May 1918 and the end of 1920, nearly 4.7 million members of the Red and White Forces, Partisan Detachments, and Nationalist Armies died as a result of combat or disease, or simply disappeared. Footnote 23. The population on Soviet territory, within 1926 borders, fell from its 1917 level by 7.1 million in 1920, by 10.9 million in 1921, and by 12.7 million in early 1922. Footnote 24. Up to 2 million of this loss was due to emigration, but the overwhelming majority who died perished not in battle, but as a result of the ravages of typhus, typhoid fever, cholera, smallpox, dysentery, hunger, and cold. In December 1919, Lenin warned, quote, either the lice will defeat socialism or socialism will defeat the lice, end quote. In 1920, drought compounded the cumulative effects of food requisitioning in the countryside by triggering a catastrophic famine that peaked in summer and autumn of 1921, but continued through to the end of 1922. As many as 5 million would die of starvation. The Civil War was dominated by the cruel and grueling conflict between the Red Army and the White Armies yet its constituent conflicts were far more complex than the battle between those committed to building a socialist society and those seeking to restore some version of the old regime. Up to autumn 1918, probably the biggest threat to Bolshevik power came from the so-called democratic counter-revolution, led by the right SRs who were determined to restore the mandate they had received in elections to the constituent assembly. The Cossacks, for their part, whose eleven hosts stretched across the southern and eastern borders, fought to maintain their distinctive caste, and increasingly ethnic, identity, and sided mainly, but not exclusively, with the whites. Another ingredient was added to the civil war by the nationalist armies, which struggled to achieve different degrees of autonomy. In 1918, the epicenter of nationalist conflict was in Finland and Ukraine. In 1919, in Ukraine, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Finland. In 1920, in Poland, Azerbaijan, Armenia. In 1921, in Georgia. And in 1920-22, in Central Asia. Added to this were conflicts between ethnic groups that flared up as emerging nations struggled to carve out territories for themselves notably clashes between Armenians and Azeris, Georgians and Armenians, Poles and Lithuanians, and Poles and Ukrainians. In addition, 
the incipient Bolshevik state found itself in conventional warfare with powerful existing states, Germany and then the Allies, and with newly formed nation-states, Poland and Finland. The civil war thus had a vast international and geopolitical dimension, initially significant in relation to the outcome of the First World War, and soon significant for the prospects of nation-building in Eastern Europe and for socialist revolution across Europe, and, to a lesser extent, the Far East. Another element in the Civil War was the activities of warlords, usually known as Atamani or Ottomani in Ukrainian, in Siberia, the Far East, and Ukraine. These were men possessed of armies, usually based on personal ties, which struggled for control of territory and resources. They displayed varying levels of political consciousness. Someone like Nestor Machno was a committed anarchist whose revolutionary army put up fierce resistance to all who sought to impose external authority on southern Ukraine. More typically of the erratic political loyalties of most Ottomani was Nikifor Hurihyev, 1885-1919, whose irregulars carried out fearsome atrocities in Ukraine. Having been awarded the Cross of St. George for bravery in the Tsarist army, Huihurev became a lieutenant colonel in the National Army of Ukraine following the Bolshevik seizure of power. When the Germans installed Pavlo Skorospadsky in Kiev in April 1918, he transferred his loyalty to him, but in November he joined the uprising against the hetman. When the new ruler, Simon Petliora, leader of the Directory government, forbade him to fight French interventionists, he deserted to the Reds, before revolting against them in July 1919 and joining Nestor Machno's anarchist army. Red partisans, often well outside the control of the Bolshevik party, and sometimes little different from bandits, also played a major role in Siberia, Transbaikal, the Amur region, and the Far East, where they were critical in fighting the Atamani and the Whites. Footnote 25. Finally, there were the irregulars who fought to defend the interests of local communities, violently confronting food detachments and anti-desertion squads, but often without allegiance to the contenders for national power. Footnote 26. Such green formations were particularly strong in south-central Ukraine, Tambov, and western Siberia. Once red victory looked likely, some grew to the point where in 1920-21 they became mass peasant armies that rose up against the Bolshevik regime. All protagonists in the Civil War practiced extreme violence. Reds as well as whites buried or burned their enemies alive. Prisoners, though usually incorporated into their captors' army, might be slaughtered if there were no resources to support them. Rape was a regular weapon of war. Populations were pacified by the use of massive artillery fire or mass executions. The white general, Peter Rangel, recalled that after his forces swept the Reds from the northern Caucasus in January 1919, quote, On the outskirts of one of the Cossack settlements, we met five young Cossacks with rifles. Where are you going, lads? We're going to beat up some Bolsheviks. There are a lot of them hiding in their reeds. Their army has fled. Yesterday, I killed seven. This was said by one of the boys, about 12 years old, as though he had achieved some great feat. During the whole of the intestinal conflict, 
I never felt as sharply as I did at that moment the utter horror of fratricidal war. End quote. Footnote 27. The meanings of violence were manifold. Most obviously, it was a way of crushing enemies and of inspiring fear in one's opponents. It was often inspired by ideology, but as Wrangell's example attests, it could be a depraved form of pleasure. Violence was central to the way in which combat groups cemented bonds and forged identities. Violence also spilled over into the civilian population. Peasants disemboweled members of the food detachments and local communities wreaked havoc on neighbors they believed to have appropriated their land or resources. Violence could thus be predatory or a desperate reaction by a community facing threat. On the 27th of December 1917, in Novosherkask, the formation of a volunteer army was announced by General Alexeev, who had been commander-in-chief of the Russian Armed Forces from March to May 1917. Kornilov, who loathed Alexeev, was appointed commander-in-chief. Footnote 28. Some 4,000 officers, cadets, and students flocked to the Don to join the fledgling White Army. The hope was to enlist the Don Cossacks, who prided themselves on their history of defending Russian statehood in the battle to overthrow the upstart regime. Relations between the volunteers and Don Cossacks were strained from the first, since the Cossacks' prime interest was in defending their new-won autonomy rather than in seeking to re-establish a unified Russian state. In January, enthusiastic but poorly trained Red Guards and sailors 35,000 Latvian riflemen, plus a motley collection of foreign prisoners of war organized into an international legion, surged into the Don region from the north and quickly captured Taganrog. See figure 4.1. Mortified, General Alexei Kaledin, Ataman of the Don Cossacks, committed suicide on the 29th of January. On the 23rd of February, as Red forces entered Rostov-on-Don, Kornilov began a heroic march south across the frozen steppe, the so-called Ice March, deep into the territory of the Kuban Cossacks. His attempt to take Ekaterinodar between the 9th and 13th of April was a disaster, but he died fighting. Command of a somewhat battered volunteer army now passed to General Anton Denikin. In May, the Don Cossacks sought an accommodation with the German occupation regime, and this set them further at odds with the volunteer army. On the 23rd of June, the volunteers, now 8,000 to 9,000 strong as a result of the incorporation of 3,000 officers from the former Romanian front, launched the brilliant Second Cuban Campaign, followed in autumn by the equally successful North Caucasus Campaign. Subsequently, the Kuban and Don Cossacks would accept the leadership of Denikin, who, with backing from the Allies, became Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of South Russia on the 8th of January 1919. Meanwhile, following the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, Trotsky, now Commissar of War, began the process of creating a conventional army. Footnote 29. Initially, the hope was that young workers and peasants would volunteer to join a new Red Army, but by the 1st of July, only 360,000 men had signed up. 
in the teeth of opposition from Bolsheviks who, on ideological grounds, rejected a standing army in favour of a citizen's militia. Trotsky determined to build a regular army. On the 29th of May, he reinstated compulsory military service, although as late as 1920, 17% of soldiers were still volunteers. But it was his decision to recruit former Tsarist officers as military specialists that particularly incensed his opponents. These specialists were given considerable leeway in the field, but were subject to close oversight from political military commissars. By spring 1919, more than 200 former generals and about 400 former colonial and lieutenant colonels were fighting for the Reds. See figure 4.2, footnote 30. Some were coerced and others saw their families held hostage for their good behaviour, but a surprising number, including some top generals, chose to join the Red Army. By early 1921, the latter had 217,000 commanders, as officers were now called, one-third of whom had held positions in the Tsarist army. In order to weld a mass of poorly equipped and ill-disciplined conscripts together, vigorous steps were taken to instill discipline. Summary executions and the decimation of units, first the commissar and then the commissar, as one of Trotsky's orders read, were applied in cases of mass flight, although in practice only 0.6% of ordinary deserters were ever shot, usually when they had fled their units two or three times or had stolen arms. On the 2nd of September 1918, a revolutionary military council of the Republic was formed to preside over field operations, and soon each front had its own council, made up of one military specialist and two political commissars. In October, elected party committees were abolished and replaced by political departments, consisting of the commissar and his assistants, a form of organization that Trotsky later tried to extend to the trade unions. The Civil War proved to be Trotsky's finest hour. He emerged as a brilliant military leader, remarkable in one whose only previous experience had been as a journalist in the Balkan Wars. As a tactician, he was flexible and, though certainly not infallible, he was able to learn from his mistakes. Above all, as a magnificent orator, he was an inspirational figure for his men, as he toured from front to front in the train that served as his mobile headquarters. His colleague, Anatoly Lunacharsky, summed up his role in the Civil War in 1923, a time when it was still possible to speak frankly. Quote, it would be wrong to imagine that the second great leader of the Russian Revolution is inferior to his colleague, i.e. Lenin, in everything. There are, for instance, aspects in which Trotsky incontestably surpasses him. He is more brilliant. He is clearer. He is more active. Lenin is fitted as no one else to take the chair at the Council of People's Commissars and to guide the world revolution with the touch of genius. But he could never have coped with the titanic mission that Trotsky took upon his own shoulders, with those lightning moves from place to place, those astounding speeches, those fanfares of on-the-spot orders, that role of being the unceasing electrifier of a weakening army, now at one spot, now at another. There is not a man on earth who could have replaced Trotsky in that respect. End quote. Footnote 31. 
Not surprisingly, Trotsky's haughtiness as well as his controversial policies in forging a Red Army made him many enemies. Stalin and Klement Voroshilov, political commissar of the 1st Cavalry Army, were deeply distrustful of the military specialists. In May 1918, during the campaign against the Don Cossacks, Stalin was dispatched to Tsaritsyn, where he held show trials of former Tsarist officers working for the Red Army and executed dozens of prisoners of war. He ignored repeated orders from Trotsky, who, with Lenin's backing, recalled him from the front in October. In March 1919, opposition to Trotsky's policies came to a head at the Eighth Party Congress. Stalin's proposal to strengthen the status of the party's military organizations was accepted, but Lenin supported Trotsky on the issue of military specialists. During the first six months of civil war, the counter-revolutionary cause was led by the resolutely anti-socialist volunteer army of General Denikin, but during the summer of 1918, the center of gravity of the anti-Bolshevik cause shifted to the SRs. In May 1918, the Czech Legion, a body of 38,000 men recruited by the Tsarist government from Austro-Hungarian prisoners of war, was making its way along the Trans-Siberian Railway to Vladivostok, where it was due to be evacuated to join the Allies in Western Europe. After clashes with the local Soviets, Trotsky issued an unenforceable order on the 14th of May that the Czechs be disarmed. This immediately sparked a rebellion that quickly spread along the railway from Chelyabinsk. Czech rebels now provided the right SRs with the armed backing they so sorely needed. A people's army of the Komach, that is, an army supporting the constituent assembly. Within months, the legion held a vast area east of the Volga. The right SRs set up anti-Bolshevik governments in the Volga and the Urals regions to enforce the mandate they had received in the elections to the Constituent Assembly. From this time on, one can speak of full-scale civil war, with large armies fighting along defined fronts. There was, however, none of the positional warfare that had been an intermittent feature of fighting during the First World War, much of the fighting taking place along railways or involving cavalry. Footnote 32. The rebellion by Czech troops caused consternation in Bolshevik ranks. In April 1918, the imperial family had been taken from Tobolsk, where Nikola II had demonstrated his carpentry skills by building a platform on the roof of the Orangery to Ekaterinburg in the Urals. As the Czech legion advanced on Ekaterinburg, the local Soviet decided that the imperial family must be eliminated. Some historians believe that a secret order to this effect came from Lenin and Ayakov Sverdlov, chair of the Soviet CEC, but it has never been found. Footnote 33. On the night of the 16th to the 17th of July 1918, the local Cheka, the political police, led by Ayakov Yurovsky, a watchmaker that had been a Bolshevik since 1905, carried out the shooting of Nikola, Alexandra, their four daughters, their son Alexei and four servants. Their corpses were taken to an abandoned mine shaft where they were covered with vitriol and set alight. On the 25th of July, the Czech Legion captured Ekaterinburg to discover the royal family had vanished. Despite the military backing of the Czech Legion, the democratic counter-revolution of the SRs 
proved an abortive experiment. On the 8th of June, SRs and cadets created an all-Russian government in Samara, a city on the east bank of the middle reaches of the Volga, which pledged to resume the war against Germany and overthrow the Bolsheviks. It made no attempt to reverse the land redistribution, but its resort to conscription was not popular with the local peasantry. In Omsk, on the 30th of June, the Western Siberian Commissariat of the SRs broke with the rhetoric of people's power and threw in its lot with the Council of Ministers of the Temporary Siberian Government, which comprised right SRs, advocates of Siberian autonomy, and white officers. This temporary government proceeded to abolish Soviets, arrest Bolsheviks, and return estates to their former owners. Footnote 34. In Ekaterinburg, an Orl's provisional government sought to act as a buffer between the Omsk and Samara administrations, but clashed with the Omsk government when the latter refused to recognize its borders and imposed a 50% surcharge on the grain it sent from Siberia. Under pressure from the Czechs, the Samara and Omsk governments agreed to meet in Ufa in September 1918 with a view to uniting their forces. This led to the formation in Omsk of the Directory Government, in which the SRs, having made substantial concessions to the Whites on the agrarian question, gained only two of the five places. The fate of these SR-sponsored attempts to create a third way between the dictatorships of right and left was sealed on 18th of November when Cossack officers arrested the SR members of the Omsk Directory and installed Admiral Alexander Kolchak as supreme ruler. Meanwhile, far to the north, in Archangelsk province, a somewhat more moderate coalition of socialists, liberals, and army officers had been set up in August 1918 with the help of British interventionist forces. Footnote 35. This too was pushed in an increasingly right-wing direction as it grappled with deep social conflicts and ended up in turn the victim of a coup by Kolchak. The fate of the democratic counter-revolution is interesting not least because it reveals the impossibility by this stage of democratic government in Russia. In the face of conflicts over land, industrial management, and law and order, the SRs proved unable to translate the electoral support they had received in the Constituent Assembly into solid government. Crucially, they proved unable to establish viable armies. Having gone to considerable lengths to secure the cooperation of conservative military elements, they ended up in hock to them, abandoning democratic politics and compromising what were for the peasants the most important gains of the revolution. Admiral Kolchak, the supreme ruler in Omsk, now became the principal leader of the white cause. Appointed commander by the Black Sea Fleet in 1916, he had offered his services to the British Army following the Bolshevik seizure of power. General Alfred Knox, head of the British mission in Siberia, was his great champion, seeing in the vain and suggestible admiral the only hope for crushing the Bolsheviks. The head of the French military mission, General Maurice Janin, was less impressed by the capacities of a man who had no experience of land warfare. But, despite French and American reservations, the Allies threw in their lot with the Supreme Ruler in spring 1919. 
Denikin reluctantly accepted Kolchak's supremacy, although in practice he enjoyed more power than his rival, who was constrained by the Council of the Supreme Ruler, the former Omsk government, as well as by thuggish warlords such as G.M. Semenov, Ataman of the Transbaikal Cossack Host, and I.M. Kalmakov, whose atrocities brought disgrace on his regime. Nevertheless, the consequence of Allied recognition was that Kolchak received a huge volume of weapons and advice. Moreover, to his great good fortune, the capture of Kazan by the Czech Legion back in August 1918 had placed the Tsar's reserve of 700 million gold rubles at his disposal, which meant the Omsk government could issue loans backed by the reserve. The whites represented the interests of the old elites, but they were not a class movement in a sociological sense. An analysis of 71 generals and officers involved in the Volunteer Army's first Kuvan campaign showed that only 21% were from hereditary nobility, and only 5 had owned landed estates. Although, in later white armies, the proportion of officers of noble blood may have been higher. Footnote 36. This reflected the democratization of the officer corps that had taken place during the First World War, and reminds us that many who joined the white cause did so not in order to maintain their family's privileges, but out of a patriotic sense of honor or some personal connection. The whites were, first and foremost, Russian nationalists who aspired to re-establish Russia one and indivisible, which meant suppressing anarchy, and restoring a strong state and the values of the Orthodox Church. What united them emotionally was a passionate detestation of Bolshevism, which they saw as a German-Jewish conspiracy inflicted on the Russian people. In white propaganda, the words Jew, Zid, and Communist were interchangeable. Naturally, they detested class conflict, and they feared and hated the revolutionary masses, that wild beast, as the journalist and cadet politician Ariadna Tirkova-Williams called them. Contemptuous of idle talkers, they saw themselves as men of action. In their view, only a strong power could stop Russia sliding into the abyss. V. V. Shulgin, a supporter of Denikin, wrote of the volunteer army that, quote, Having taken on itself the task of purging Russia of anarchy, it raised as an immutable principle of firm government a dictatorial power. Only an unlimited, strong, and firm power could save the nation and restore the torn-down temple of state-mindedness. End quote. Footnote 37. Some leading members of the white administrations favored a restoration of the monarchy. Wrangell was one, but others believed that a period of firm government might eventually lead to the reconvening of a constituent assembly. White officers liked to see themselves as being above class and above party, a familiar trope of cadet discourse. They sought to keep political differences at bay by avoiding thrashing out detailed political programs, justifying this in terms of what they rather pretentiously called a principle of non-predetermination, that is, the postponement of policy making until after they had won the civil war. However, Faced by opponents who had a detailed social and political agenda, non-predetermination proved to be a non-starter. 
In the course of 1919, the white administrations were forced to grapple with the thorny issues of land reform, national autonomy, labor policy, and local government. Generally, the policies they concocted proved too little and too late, and laid bare internal divisions. Kolchak's government, more stable and ramified than Denikin's peripatetic Special Conference of the Armed Forces of South Russia, tended to take the lead in policy-making. Footnote 38. In March 1919, it issued a proposal to allow peasants to rent land from the state, but a month later, not to be outdone, Denikin put forward a plan to bolster peasant smallholding through compulsory expropriation of gentry land, albeit with compensation. However, he was overruled by his special conference, which called for the return of all land seized at the time of the revolution, and insisted that any expropriation could only be considered three years after the end of hostilities. It is true that as the whites faced the prospect of defeat, their policies became less uncompromising. Wrangell's land reform law of 1920 was fairly progressive, envisaging a land fund created from the compulsory alienation of lands above a certain norm to which recipients of land would be obliged to give part of their harvest, thus enabling those whose land had been taken gradually to be compensated. Footnote 39. The Achilles' heel of white policy was their failure to devise a policy on national self-determination for non-Russian ethnicities. Located on the peripheries of the empire, the whites inevitably had to deal with national minorities, yet their commitment to Russia, one and indivisible, inhibited them from making serious concessions towards aspirations for political autonomy. For Denikin, the sweet poisonous dreams of complete independence were hateful, and he refused to recognize a separatist Ukrainian state, although he was prepared to concede cultural autonomy. His administration in the North Caucasus in 1919 had no alternative but to recognize autonomous districts of Ossetians, English, and others, but whereas the Terek Cossacks mostly supported the whites, these mountain peoples resisted efforts to conscript them. In Western Siberia, Kolchak was less troubled by the national question, yet when the Finnish general Mannerheim offered him support by taking Petrograd in July 1919, in return for recognition of an independent Finland, Kolchak spurned the offer. History will never forgive me if I surrender what Peter the Great won. End quote. None of the white leaders would recognize the independence of Finland and the Baltic states, though General Nikolai Yudinich could have been persuaded, and nor would they negotiate with Josef Pilsudski, the first marshal of Poland. The Allies had intervened in Russia in spring 1918 with a view to maintaining the war effort on the Eastern Front. Indeed, when the British Royal Marines landed at Murmansk in March 1918, it was with the blessing of Trotsky, who feared that the Finns and their German allies were about to capture the Arctic port. By August 1918, 50,000 foreign troops occupied the region south of Archangelsk and along the North Dvina River. The landing of British and Japanese troops in Vladivostok in April was harder to justify in terms of support for the war effort, and it provoked strenuous protests from the Bolsheviks. The Japanese military opportunistically sought to exploit the power vacuum in the Far East 
in order to facilitate their ultimate goal of controlling Manchuria and of reversing their declining influence in domestic politics. Their intervention was a factor, along with general concern to ensure the defeat of the Central Powers, that persuaded Woodrow Wilson in July to agree to U.S. participation in expeditions to North Russia and Siberia in order to assist Russian patriots. Logically, the signing of the armistice with Germany in November should have led to the Allies scaling back their intervention, but the opposite happened. The lifting of the German blockade in the Baltic and Black Seas led to an increase in the number of soldiers and weapons being brought into Soviet Russia, while the Allied blockade of Russia, imposed after Brest-Litovsk, was maintained. By 1919, there were 150,000 foreign troops in Siberia and the Far East, including the Czech Legion, although this was not many in relation to the size of Eurasia. In the Transcaucasus, there were over 20,000 British troops by 1919, their initial aim being to secure the railway from Baku to Batum. In the Black Sea, Prime Minister Clemenceau sent six French divisions to occupy Odessa and Sevastopol, so by February 1919 there were nearly 60,000 foreign troops across southern Russia, including southern Ukraine and the North Caucasus. French troops showed little keenness to fight, however, and following the mutiny by the French Black Sea Fleet, they evacuated in April 1919. From around this time, the Allies grew increasingly lukewarm about military involvement, yet they stepped up their supplies to the Whites and to certain nationalist forces. Britain sent materiel worth more than £100 million, mainly to Denikin and Kolchak, and the USA allowed the Russian embassy in Washington to utilize credits to the tune of more than $50 million. These funds and supplies were vital to equipping the anti-Bolshevik forces, but were not decisive in shifting the balance of military advantage towards the anti-Bolshevik cause. Supplies often failed to arrive when they were needed, and pressure from the Allies caused Kolchak to launch his spring offensive of 1919 prematurely. The most critical phase of the Civil War came in spring 1919. Of fateful significance was the fact that Kolchak's spring offensive was not coordinated with Denikin's Moscow offensive in July. In March, Kolchak's forces moved with the impressive swiftness west from Omsk across the Urals towards the Volga, with the aim of moving north to connect with General Yevgeny Miller's white forces in Archangelsk. By the time they reached Samara and Simbersk, the crossing points on the Volga, their supply lines had become overstretched. The Reds counterattacked, and, under the gifted commander Mikhail Frunz, pushed the Whites back east, taking Ekaterinburg on the 15th of July. In May, a northwestern front opened up around Pskov after 6,000 Whites crossed from Estonia into Soviet territory. This northwestern army was under the command of General Yudinich, who in September drove the Reds back to within sight of Petrograd. Red Petrograd came perilously close to falling to the counter-revolution. Lenin was minded to see the city abandoned, but Trotsky helped organize a heroic defense of the former capital, repelling the invaders. 
The most dramatic of the white offences, however, was led by Denikin from the south. Between January and March, the Red Army had managed to capture the Don region from the Cossacks, but in May, General VZ Maimaevsky, commander of the volunteer army within the armed forces of South Russia, scattered the Red forces controlling this vital grain region. In July, Denikin's forces drove north along the railway, and by October reached Tula, less than 200 kilometers from the capital. The Reds improvised cleverly, exposing the precariousness of Denikin's supply lines and the exhaustion and unreliability of his 100,000-strong army. Harried by partisan attacks in his rear, especially from the Ukrainian anarchist forces of Makhno, the armed forces of South Russia were forced into a headlong retreat. After an appalling winter in which many were captured, some 34,000 volunteers and Cossacks managed to get to Novorossiysk, whence they were evacuated by sea in March 1920. Meanwhile, in Siberia, the Reds pushed Kolchak's forces eastward until in November they captured Omsk, the political headquarters of his government. On the 5th of January 1920, the political centre, set up in November 1919 by the All-Siberian Conference of Zemstvos and Towns, seized Irkutsk, showing that there was still some life left in the moderate socialists. The centre arrested Kolchak upon his arrival in Irkutsk, and he was executed by local Bolsheviks on the 7th of February. At the start of 1920, it looked as though Red victory was at hand. However, in order to thwart Soviet expansion, Marshal Pilsudski had hatched a plan to create a federation of Ukraine, Belarusia, and Lithuania under Polish leadership. In return for Eastern Galicia, he offered to support the Ukrainian nationalist leader Simon Petlura in his bid to establish an independent Ukraine. On the 7th of May, the Polish-Ukrainian army captured Kiev. However, the brilliant Red commander, Mikhail Tukhachevsky, pushed Polish forces back along the Bug River by the 1st of August. Tukhachevsky proclaimed that, quote, Across the corpse of white Poland lies the path to world conflagration. We shall bring happiness and peace to the toilers of humanity on our bayonets. End quote. For a few weeks, the normally level-headed Lenin, see figure 4.3, imagined that the Red Army would march through Poland and bring revolution to Germany, where the right-wing Kapp Putsch had recently been crushed. The Bolshevik decision to take the war into Poland proved disastrous, the Polish people rising up against their historic enemies. On the 13th of August, as the Reds neared Warsaw, the Polish army counterattacked with astonishing success. The Miracle on the Vistula. Overstretched and outnumbered, the Reds were battered into retreat. In October, the Bolsheviks signed an armistice with Poland, the prelude to the Treaty of Riga, in March 1921. This partitioned Ukraine between the Soviet state and a hugely expanded Poland and recognized the boundary with the Baltic states that had been drawn up by Germany in 1918. The treaty reflected the weakness of both Soviet Russia and Poland, and, as it turned out, marked the end of Bolshevik hopes for a rapid extension of socialist revolution into Europe. The coda to the civil war came in March 1920, when 35,000 whites who had been evacuated from the Don arrived in Crimea. 
Baron P. N. Wrangel, who had been ousted by Denikin, was recalled from exile in Constantinople to head the armed forces of South Russia. He removed incompetent generals and formed a cabinet to draw up political reforms designed to mollify the Allies. Despite his fierce criticism of Denikin's government, he proved no better at tackling rampant inflation, speculation, and embezzlement. Between April and October, prices of food rose 16 to 20-fold, fuel 50-fold, and industrial goods 12-fold. Wrangel's military reforms, based upon elite units, were more successful, allowing him to break out of his confinement in Crimea and capture the grain-growing region of North Tauride in June. Once the Polish front had stabilized, however, the Red Army launched a crushing offensive on the 28th of October 1920, which forced Wrangel to effect a huge seaborne evacuation of 146,000 men and families from Crimea. Meanwhile, in eastern Siberia, the Bolsheviks resolved that with Kolchik out of the way, it was better to do a deal with the SRs and Mensheviks. In April 1920, they set up a far eastern republic as an independent buffer between Soviet Russia and Japan, comprising Bolsheviks and moderate socialists, although Moscow quietly exerted influence behind the scenes. The most ghastly of the Siberian warlords, R.F. von Ungern Sternberg, seized Mongolia from its Chinese occupants in 1920-1921 and restored Bogdo Gegen, the eighth reincarnation of the living Buddha, with a view to establishing a base from which to overthrow Soviet power. Apprehended by Reds, he was executed in September 1921. The Japanese army remained in occupation of the southern maritime province and northern Sakhalin until 1922, providing a refuge for the remnants of the White Army, but in summer of that year it began to withdraw. Following the fall of white-controlled Vladivostok in October 1922, the Far Eastern Republic was wound up. The reasons for red victory are manifold. One should begin by noting that the white victory was never beyond the realm of possibility. If Kolchak and Denikin had advanced on Moscow simultaneously in 1919, rather than five months apart, or if Kolchak had struck a deal with Mannerheim, then the Red Army could easily have gone under. Its operations over the course of the war were uneven in quality, sometimes brilliant, sometimes poorly planned and executed. Nevertheless, the Reds had certain military advantages over the Whites. Firstly, they had a larger army. In the course of 1919, the Red Army grew from 800,000 to nearly 3 million, and by autumn 1920 to over 5 million. But at no point did the number of frontline troops exceed half a million. The combined total of the white forces was larger than used to be supposed, and may have approached 2 million by spring 1920. By that stage, of course, it no longer comprised mainly officers, Cossacks, cadets, and students, but peasants, townspeople, intellectuals, and even some workers. Both sides found it difficult to recruit and retain troops, and both suffered from massive levels of desertion. Deserters mostly left because of material shortages in their units or because they needed to sow their fields. The Bolsheviks got on top of this problem by giving deserters a second chance 
but threatening to cut the tax exemptions and special rations enjoyed by their families if they deserted a second time. Footnote 40. Secondly, so far as the quality of the Red and White armies was concerned, the two sides were initially fairly evenly matched, but over the course of the war the Reds gained an edge. Many experienced officers joined the volunteer army in early 1918, but this ceased to be an advantage once Trotsky employed military specialists. Moreover, the Reds proved better at nurturing young talent. Gifted commanders who rose from the ranks included S.M. Boudigny, commander of the 1st Cavalry Army, V.K. Bluecker, four-time recipient of the Order of the Red Banner, who became the senior military advisor to the Guomindang in China in 1924-1927, and Frunz, who not only led the counteroffensive against Kolchak in 1919, but also dealt the coup de grace to Wrangel in 1920. Consequently, over the war, the proportion of military specialists in the officer corps fell from three quarters in 1918 to just over a third by the end of 1921. Footnote 41. As regards the quality of the white cavalry forces, the Cossack cavalry certainly offered a significant military advantage, given that the front line moved so fast. Yet they were never at ease fighting beyond their homelands, and their dream of autonomy was ultimately incompatible with the white commitment to a reunified empire. A third factor influencing the balance of military advantage relates to the relative unity of leadership on the two sides. The white armies were riven by personal animosity between Alexeev and Kornilov, Denikin and Kolchak, and Denikin and Wrangel. Footnote 42. In the leadership of the Red Army too, there were no few grudges, notably between Stalin and Trotsky and Stalin and Tukhachevsky, but they proved less damaging since the Bolsheviks shared a binding ideology and a recognized leader in Lenin. Fourth, the Bolsheviks were undoubtedly superior in the sphere of organization. The Red Army had a unified center of command, the Revolutionary Military Council of the Republic, that was accountable to a tightly knit political oligarchy. The Council of Workers and Peasants' Defense, which fused the civilian and defense sectors, was another expeditious innovation as were institutions such as the political commissars, the Cheka, and the underground party network in white-occupied areas. By contrast, the white armies, beset by communications difficulties, were organizationally fragmented and unable to coordinate strategy. Perhaps the key strategic advantage enjoyed by the Reds lay in their possession of a compact, integrated territory. This meant they could send forces from one front to another without great difficulty. By contrast, the Whites were disadvantaged by their location along the periphery of European Russia. The Don base of the Volunteer Army was nearly a thousand kilometers from Moscow. Omsk, the seat of Kolchak's government, was almost three thousand kilometers from Petrograd. Any advance into the heartlands of Soviet power, therefore, created a problem of long supply lines and coordination of armies strung out along the periphery. Railways radiated outwards from Moscow, and lateral lines, which would have been beneficial to the Whites, were underdeveloped. Moreover, the possession by the Reds of a core territory, where the majority of the population and resources were concentrated, 
gave them control not only of the stocks of the Tsarist army, but also of the key defense industries. The whites, by contrast, were better supplied with coal, but had control only of secondary centers of defense industry in the Danba and the Urals. As against that, they had an abundance of food, especially in Siberia and the Kuban region, which remained under white control throughout 1919. Soldiers in the white armies were generally better fed than their red counterparts, whose ration norm of 1 fund, 0.4 kilograms, of bread a day was lower than in the Tsarist army, and even then was not always fulfilled. The significance of Allied support for the whites as a factor determining the outcome of the civil war is contentious. The scale of military support should not be underestimated. By mid-1919, Britain had supplied the whites in the Baltic with 40,000 rifles, 500 Vickers and Lewis machine guns, and numerous tanks and aircraft. By the end of 1919, the armed forces of South Russia had received 198,000 rifles, 6,177 machine guns, and 1,200 artillery pieces, plus 100,000 rifles from the USA. Footnote 43. Nevertheless, the divisions within Allied governments concerning the wisdom of supporting the anti-Bolshevik cause, combined with mistrust between the interventionist governments, meant that material aid was never offered on the scale the whites expected. They thus had cause to feel aggrieved, for if London, Paris, and Washington had been determined to overthrow Bolshevik power, they could have committed men and resources on a vastly greater scale than they did. But Allied governments faced war-weary publics and growing left-wing opposition to intervention, so this option was never on the political table. Even the French, who wished to redeem their huge pre-war investments in Russia, were more concerned about the restraint of Germany than about Russia. Nevertheless, while Allied support made the 1919 campaigns of Kolchak and Denikin possible, their ultimate failure can hardly be blamed on the inadequacy of that support. If military and strategic factors were paramount in explaining the defeat of the Whites, socio-political factors were also significant. If the white generals were politically inexperienced, this was hardly true of their right-wing cadet and monarchist advisors. First, their failure to come up with credible schemes of land reform made them suspect in peasant eyes, and there were enough cases of officers returning former landowners to their estates, for instance, Major General Uvarov in Stavropol in 1918 and the Ufa Directory in 1919, to fix in peasant minds the notion that a white victory would mean the return of the landlords. The Reds certainly did not win because they had mass peasant support. Their policies of requisitioning and conscription created intense animosity on the part of the rural population. Nevertheless, they were certainly seen as the lesser of two evils. Indeed, it was the willingness of the rural population to swing behind the Bolsheviks whenever a white takeover threatened which meant that so long as the civil war lasted, endemic rural unrest did not pose a serious threat to Bolshevik power. Secondly, the arbitrariness, looting, and brigandage of white armies, especially the Cossacks, were a factor that alienated the population. In Siberia, for example, the brutalities of the Ottomans caused many wealthy peasants to join the partisans who fought deep behind Kolchak's lines. Thirdly, 
The failure of the whites to deal with the national question had more damaging consequences than did the frequent alienation of nationalist movements by the Bolsheviks. However much national self-determination was subordinated to Moscow's military priorities, it was known that the Bolsheviks were willing to negotiate on the matter of self-government. Fourthly, despite trumpeting their devotion to the Russian people, the whites failed to forge a conception of the nation with which the peasants could identify. They could probably have done more to play on the orthodox faith that was still shared by a majority of the population, they had, after all, the church on their side, yet they proved too inflexible, too hidebound by a militaristic ethos to adapt traditional values to the new world of mass politics. Moreover, and with savage irony, the Bolsheviks, tribunes of proletarian internationalism, could play for propaganda purposes on the white reliance on foreign assistance to present them as false patriots, as the playthings of foreign capital. Karl Radek would go so far as to describe the civil war as a, quote, national struggle of liberation against foreign intervention, end quote. Footnote 44. One consequence was that following the war with Poland, some leading conservatives began to see in the Bolsheviks the one hope for preserving some form of Russian statehood. Finally, the Bolsheviks had a huge advantage over the whites when it came to propaganda. They understood the lesson of the First World War about the need to maintain military and civilian morale, and from the start, they recognized the importance of what they called political enlightenment. In October 1918, compulsory classes were introduced for all ranks in the nascent Red Army, and cultural and enlightenment commissions were attached to every unit, each having sections for political literacy, literature, theatre and music, and physical culture. Given the fact that a majority of the population was illiterate, and that paper was in critically short supply, political enlightenment depended to a large extent on the spoken word. In 1920, 1,415 Red Army and Navy theatre groups staged agit plays that dramatised what the soldiers and sailors were fighting for. Ideas were expressed simply and often in ethical more than political terms. Red Army soldiers were advised, Do not wish for more than you have. Be independent. Do not wish for a slave when you yourself have no desire to be a slave. Respect science, art, culture, and handicrafts. About 3,100 political posters were produced which, in stylistic terms, drew on popular biblical, classical, and French revolutionary traditions, and the Russian Telegraph Agency, under the inspired direction of the poet Vladimir Mayakovsky, developed a distinctive agitational style of bold, colourful cartoon frames, duplicated by means of cardboard stencils. All these forms of propaganda popularised a Manichaean view of the war, Red versus white, proletariat versus bourgeoisie, poor peasant versus kulak. The bourgeoisie were represented as corpulent males, often in a top hat and with a watch chain, the worker often as a muscular blacksmith. New symbols such as the hammer and sickle and the red star, the logo of the Red Army, were created, red being a sacred colour in popular culture and thus capable of investing the working class and the Bolshevik party with a quasi-religious aura. 
five Ajit trains spent 659 days in the field and welcomed 2.8 million members of the public at 775 different locations. By autumn 1919, Denikin also had three. They carried projectors that showed short didactic films that inter alia allowed the populace to see what their new leaders looked like. It was claimed that two million people saw such films, many exposed to this miraculous medium for the first time. The white generals did not leave the field of propaganda wide open to the Bolsheviks. The armed forces of South Russia also had an information and agitation agency which put out posters and leaflets recounting lurid tales from the commune. But it had little experience of working with peasants and workers, and its efforts were fitful. As a result of the Civil War, the Red Army quickly became the largest institution of a state, numbering 5.5 million by 1920, including half a million former workers. In the absence of a numerous or politically reliable proletariat, it became by default the principal social base of the regime. Fighting to defend the socialist motherland, living together in collective units, exposed to political education, the army proved to be a training ground for the corps of activists that would staff the party and state apparatuses in the 1920s. And that's going to do it for this week. We'll continue with the next sections of the chapter that will be much shorter. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com or patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to find lots of other leftist podcasts that I recommend. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to sandimage.org to see lots of his work there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.